As we were talking about uh, false teachers and false teaching in this section of Peter's letter, Peter comes to the place where he is going to emphasize the fact that God will, in fact, judge false teachers. And he's going to pick out three examples from the book of Genesis that he will use as a precedent. God punished false prophets. He judged angels, Sodom and Gomorrah, the ancient world, and so forth. Will he not also punish these teachers? And so, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to study through these verses, beginning in verse 4, actually backing up into the second half of verse 11. We're going to do a, we're going to kind of do a little moving around in the scriptures this morning, so uh, stay with me on this. The principle and the point is very, very important, and we'll get to that, uh, hopefully, as uh, we move through this passage. So read with me. Remember, again, he's talking about false teachers and their destruction, their damnation. He says in the middle of verse 3, their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, Then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the sinful nature and despise authority. As we study through this section, it's important for us to remember one tremendous fact. God is a God of truth. God is a God of truth. The Bible speaks of him that way over and over and over again. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 16, he is called the God of truth. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, there's this marvelous description of God. He is the rock. His works are perfect. All his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong. Upright. And just as he. Isn't that a marvelous description of God? In Psalm 119, verse 160, this simple statement, all your words are true. All your words are true. You remember Jesus always says, I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth. In Revelation chapter 15, verse 3, again, another great statement about God. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways. Scripture also says, looking at it from the opposite perspective, that God cannot lie. God cannot lie. In Titus chapter 1, verse 2, that passage speaks of God. God who does not lie. The book of Hebrews also speaks of this in chapter 6, verse 18. We have this this statement, it is impossible for God to lie. God does not lie. It's impossible for him to lie. In Romans chapter 3, verse 4, Paul says this, let God be true if it means that every man is a liar. God is true. God speaks only the truth. God cannot lie. And God has revealed his truth in the scripture. We all know that. We understand that. You remember Jesus. Jesus, in his prayer in in the 17th chapter of John's Gospel, in praying with respect to the church, believers, verse 17, he says to his Father, sanctify them by the truth. And then he said, your word is truth. 
The scripture then is the truth of God. And the true God has spoken truly through his true word. Very simple. Now there's a consequence. There's a, there's a conclusion we draw from that. Very important distinction, if you will. That is, he wants his word communicated clearly. He wants his word communicated clearly. He wants it communicated entirely. He wants it communicated exactly as he gave it with no omission and no deviation. Does that make sense? God is true. He's given a true word. He expects it to be truly taught, truly proclaimed, truly preached. On the other hand, you have Satan. Jesus describes Satan, you'll remember, in John's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 44, as being what? The, the, a liar and the father of lies. Quite the contrast. God is true. All his words are true. Satan, certainly who is no match for God, nonetheless, a very powerful being, is a liar and the father of lies. And so wherever you have the enterprise of Satan, you have an attack on what? Truth. That's right. You have an attack on truth. That's the, that's the, that's the distinction we want to grab a hold of. He's a father of lies. He attacks the truth. Attacks God's word and his plan and his purpose. And because God is the God of truth, Proverbs 19 says this. I'm I'm sorry, Proverbs chapter 6, verse 19, says that God hates a false witness who pours out lies. That's a strong word. God hates a false witness who pours out. You do not want God to hate you. You do not want God to hate you. Again, in Proverbs chapter 19, verse 5, says that a false witness will not go unpunished. False witness will not go unpunished. At the very end of the Bible, at the end of the book of Revelation, in the last two chapters, chapter 21, verse 8, we have these words. Here's John writing. The context is a description of the new Jerusalem. He says, the coward, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and note this please, and all what? liars. Their place will be not in the New Jerusalem. Their place will be in the lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. In verse 27 of that same chapter, John goes on to say, nothing impure will ever enter it, meaning the New Jerusalem. Not the the slightest speck of dirt, not the slightest speck of sin will ever enter the New Jerusalem. He says, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or what? Deceitful. In chapter 22, the very next chapter, Jesus says this in verse 15. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices what? Falsehood. You see that God is absolutely opposed to falsehood, to deceit to liars, to those who uh, teach lies. So obviously God cares about the truth. He's a God of truth. He cares about the truth. He always speaks the truth. He's revealed the truth in his word. He expects it to be proclaimed and taught and preached exactly and entirely in the truthfulness with which it was inspired. As you remember back from 1 Peter. And he expects us to speak the truth. He expects us to speak his truth. So we would assume then that God is opposed to liars, right? We would, we would assume that God is opposed to false teachers, that those who would pervert his word. He's very much against them. Beloved, remember, it is one thing to tell a lie. It's a far greater thing to teach lies, especially when you teach them as truth. In Isaiah... In Isaiah chapter 9, verses 14 and 15, it says that God will destroy, literally, he will cut off the prophets who teach lies. He'll destroy them. In the book of Jeremiah, in chapter 14, verse 14, and chapter 23, verses 25 and 26, the prophets, God says, false prophets, he says, they have lied using my name. 
They've lied using my name. And he says, I will kill them. I will kill them with a sword. I will kill them with famine. But I will kill them. You do not want God opposed to you. Same thing is said in Ezekiel chapter 13. The same thing is said in Zechariah chapter 13. It goes on like that throughout the Old Testament. God is a God of truth. That is one of his attributes. That's his nature. That's who he is, a God of truth. And that is what sets him against all liars. God is not a liar. He has no fellowship with liars. And he is set particularly against those who misrepresent him and misrepresent his truth by their lies. Again, to tell a lie is a serious sin. To teach lies is a more serious sin. And Peter tells us how God will deal with such lying teachers. Because he's a God of truth. Because he desires his truth taught clearly and accurately. He is going to deal with false teachers. And Peter tells us and gives us these examples of how he's going to deal with them. In fact, verses 4 through 9 is such a compelling passage. It is one long conditional sentence. There's no period there. He just keeps going through it. He cites one example after another example after another example. It concludes in verse 9. And you'll note, he says, if, 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 five times, and then the word then. All these conditions, and then the conclusion in verse 9. So Peter tells about God's judgment of false teachers. In fact, he's already mentioned that judgment uh, at the conclusion of verse 1, hasn't he? When he says that they, are, they will be bringing swift destruction on themselves. And then at the end of verse 3, he talks about their condemnation. And he talks about their destruction, not being asleep. And the judgment of liars and the judgment of deceivers and false teachers and false prophets, all of this, again, and this is important, is vested in the very nature and character of God. His judgment must be because he's a God of truth. Does God love? Is he God love? Is he compassionate, gracious, merciful, all those marvelous things? Yeah. Sometimes we tend to overbalance his character and his nature. And we accentuate his love and his goodness and his graciousness and his mercy and compassion and all that. But we've, we sometimes we forget that he is also righteous, holy, and just. There's that side of his nature also. In a sense, that's the terrible side of his nature. If I can use that word and you don't misunderstand me. But that judgment that he is going to visit on false teachers, that judgment is vested in, in the eternality of his nature, his eternal nature as a God of truth and righteousness and holiness. He is the judge of all who will pervert his truth. He is the judge of all liars, and especially those who say they speak for him, but they do not truthfully reflect his word. And so the eternal God by his very nature, as truth, has set in motion long ago the condemnation of those who falsify his word. Long ago. This is not something recent. Long ago. In fact, the moment that sin appeared in the created order, whenever that was, and you and I don't really know when that was. We have a vague idea from the book of Genesis. But the moment that sin appeared in the created universe, the sentence of God was enacted that very instant on anyone who spoke a lie. Anyone. It was set in motion at that moment, at that instant. And all liars and all those who falsify God's word were doomed. That's when they were doomed. The verdict of guilty was in against all liars. The verdict of guilty was in against all those who pervert the truth. When that first sin was committed. That's when the verdict was passed. Long ago, if you recall from last week, the judgment was established long ago. Peter says it is not sleeping. Their destruction is inevitable and it is coming. You do not want to be a false teacher. You do not want to be a liar. You do not want to be somebody who follows a false teacher. You understand Laura's anxiety in praying for her father. You understand the, the sense of urgency of her prayer 
God, free my father, open his eyes, help him see. Now, somebody's going to say, well, are you sure? Are you sure about this? You're sure that God is not too loving. You're sure that God is not too gracious, too merciful, and too kind, and too forgiving, not to just sweep all of their lies away, sweep them under the carpet. Don't we do that? Don't we say, oh, it's okay. And we we just, you know, it's such a hassle to deal with. We just say, oh, forget it. I, You know, it's okay. And sometimes we project that very motivation onto God. Also because the thought of judgment and destruction is so horrific to think about. We don't want to have to dwell on that. We don't have to think about that. You're sure God is really going to react in a swift and devastating destruction against people who lie and teach falsehood? Are you sure about that? Yes. Yes, I'm absolutely sure. Why? Because Peter tells us why. He tells us why. He gives us examples in verses 4, 5, and 6 of this passage. In verse 4, he says, If God didn't spare angels when they sinned, in verse 5, he says, if he didn't spare the ancient world, verse 6, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah when they sinned, then do you think he's going to spare false teachers? What's the obvious conclusion? No. His terrible, swift judgment in the past has not changed. And he will judge swiftly. So Peter takes three three real classic illustrations out of the book of Genesis from the very beginning. And these illustrations become now the precedent. They become the precedent for the final judgment on liars, on deceivers, on false prophets, on false teachers, and everybody who follows them. You see why it's so imperative to... Study and make sure that you're, uh, you're well apprised of the scriptures, that you are like the Bereans. It's easy to be sucked off into false teaching, isn't it? Not only those who are teaching it, but those who are following. Look again at verse 4, if you will, if you will with me, of our passage. I just want us to look at the very first word. What's the first word of verse 4? Four. 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 That small three-letter word, which begins that verse, introduces this long conditional sentence, which concludes in verse 9. For if, or better translated, I think, since. It's a conditional clause. It's in in the subjunctive mood. The idea is, if or since God judged in the past, and he did then he will also judge in the future. That's just a simple summary statement. It's a pattern. If God judged in the past, he's going to judge in the future. So the precedent for judgment has already been established. And Peter gives us those examples. And I want you to notice something in his first example here particularly. There's a movement here from the higher to the lower. There's a movement from the higher to the lower. By that I mean, if God judged angels, angels, more elevated beings than we are when they sinned, are angels the higher? And man's the lower, right? Now notice this, please. If he judged angels when they sinned, why do men think that they will escape? That's the movement from the higher to the lower. Those who pervert the truth of God, who teach falsehood, who lead people astray, and the people led astray by them, all will be judged in the future just as they have been judged in the past. Be they men or be they angels. There is no difference. So there's a movement here from the higher to the lower. And again, this is... This is important to understand because it negates that sentiment that would tend to want to uh, see God and to believe that God would never be so severe. God would never punish anybody. Beloved, all you have to do is look at the past. All you have to do is look at his record. Because he's righteous, because he's holy, because he's just, he will punish sinners. 
you see that precedent already clearly established. In Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, that passage says that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Some will read that and some will then assume, well, see, does that mean that God won't punish? No, that doesn't mean that God won't punish wrongdoers. It just means that he takes no pleasure in having to do it. I mean, I don't know a parent around who has to punish or discipline their children who takes pleasure in it. And who hasn't at some time said this, this hurts me more than it hurts you. No child ever believed that (laughs) until they grow up and they have to do it themselves. Then they come and say, I think I am beginning to understand. It's not a pleasurable thing to him, but it must be done. This punishment, this judgment, why? Because his holiness demands it. That's why this judgment is vested in his nature. His character is a God of truth and holiness. Now, the first illustration that he uses that we're going to look at this morning is that of angels, angels who sinned. And we're going to, we're going to kind of try to find out who those angels were that sinned. Some of you are already with me because you studied this and with me in 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to review that. He says, if God did not spare angels, it's important for us to know who those angels were, when they sinned, why they sinned, what was behind that, and why he draws them as a parallel to judging false teachers. That's our point. All the creatures that God has created, be they men or angels, are responsible for the truth that God has entrusted to them. Would you agree? Absolutely. No matter how exalted those creatures are, be they angels, angelic beings, or be they men. Angels are certainly above us, but even angels, Peter tells us, do not fall outside of the judgment of God. Now, by the way, Peter's choice of this illustration, interestingly, when he chooses angels to illustrate this point, some people have suggested that this choice of his implies that false teachers were very prominent, very prominent, respected, and honored men. They're almost elevated to the level of angels. Very highly placed, highly honored people, these false teachers in the ancient world. And and we know that that's true today. We know that people certainly uh, have elevated and lifted up false teachers, given them a a place that's not due to them. There are these people who, in the eyes of the church, in the eyes of religious people, are elevated beyond common people. They reach the level where they're sort of untouchable, unreachable. They're up there. Even if they had the elevated nature of angels, that would not save them from judgment. Because it didn't, what, save the angels. didn't save the angels. But look at verse 4 with me again. If God did not spare angels when they sinned, this is one of the great realities of the Scripture that is really inexplicable. It's it's incomprehensible. Angels when they sinned. The fact that angels sinned. Let me set the stage for you a little bit. We don't know exactly how that happened. And I'm going back way, 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 way back to the, to the beginning. We don't know how they sinned. We don't know how that happened. We do know that God created the angels and that they were all before him in holiness. They were all before him around his throne, worshiping him, adoring him, loving him. We know that. And the highest of all of these created beings, the most beautiful, the most powerful, the anointed cherub who stood at the very throne of God, named Lucifer, we know that he wasn't content 
to be lower than God. We know that he wanted to be like God. He wanted to be equal with God. And so he led a rebellion. According to Revelation chapter 12, a third of all of the holy angels, a third of all of these angels who, who adored God and worshipped God, bought into his rebellion. See, how could they possibly do that? That's one of the great mysteries, how they could do that. A third of the holy angels of heaven bought into his rebellion. And in pride, they were lifted up and they set themselves against God. They rebelled against their holy creator. It was the sin of pride and rebellion. Wherever you have rebellion, you have pride. Wherever you have pride, you're going to have rebellion. It's way back in the angelic realm. And so a third of the hosts of heaven fell and they were doomed to damnation. Today we know those angels as fallen angels. We know them as demons. We know them as unclean spirits. We know them as evil spirits. They're assigned any number of names. Now the question is, when Peter, in our passage, talks about God judging angels when they sinned, is he talking about those angels back from the very, very beginning? Is that what he's talking about? It's important for us to make that distinction. Is he talking about the time when the third of the holy angels in Revelation chapter 12 were cast down and their leader Lucifer, who became the dragon, even Satan? Is that what Peter is talking about? Well, we don't know. We have to read on. Look at verse 4 again. He says to us, If God did not spare angels when they sinned, he says, putting them in gloomy dungeons, in pits of gloom, literally. That gives us a little bit more insight who these angels were. So it can't be necessarily all the angels that fell at the beginning. It can't be those angels. Why? Because those angels aren't all in hell. They aren't all in pits of gloom, are they? Where are they? They're all over the place. They're all over the place. They're, they're running around loose. These are loose demons. So who are the demons that are in those pits? That's who we're talking about. So whatever sin Peter's talking about here can't be the original fall of the angels because when they fell, they were not incarcerated in hell. They were not locked up in gloomy pits, dungeons of gloom, waiting their final judgment. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, you know this passage, it says that you and I right now as Christians, you and I right now as believers, are not wrestling against what? Flesh and blood, but rather we are wrestling against principalities, spiritual forces, authorities, powers in this dark world against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Those, by the way, are all titles for the demonic realm. So whoever these angels are that Peter is discussing, there's something other than the demons running around loose in the world. He also says, he sent them to hell. God sent them to hell. That phrase, sent them to hell, is one word in the Greek. That one word is tartarosas. Tartarosas. It means, very simply, if you transliterate the word, he tartarized them. Tartarized them. Now, that's not the same thing that you do to your fish <laughs> when you eat out. He tartarized them. What does that mean? He sent them to Tartarus. He sent them to Tartarus. That's a funny name. What's that? Tartarus. Well, it's translated as what? Hell. It's translated as hell. Because that's what it referred to. Since no one who taught about hell, no one who preached about hell, no one who read about hell had been there, and since the torments and the punishments of hell were basically basically 
unexplainable because no one has been there. No one has seen them. No one has experienced them. So we had to add some analogy to describe hell. There had to be a word in that culture. There had to be a word in that culture that they could use to describe something of what hell was like. You remember that Jesus chose a word. In the Gospels, Jesus talked about hell, and he used the word Gehenna. Do you remember that word? Gehenna? Because that word Gehenna, it it gave them a picture. It pictured something of what hell would be like. Now, the question is, what was Gehenna? Who remembers what Gehenna was? Gehenna was the valley adjacent to Jerusalem in which the dump for the city was in. And what was what was uh, particular about that valley and that dump that make Jesus use it as an analogy for hell? The fire that burned all the time. And if you've ever lived in a rural area, I used to live in Hawaii on the, on the Kona coast years ago. And when I first moved there, I mean, I'm used to garbage cans in the front and they come pick up your garbage and take it to the dump and stuff, you know. But you had to take your garbage and your trash to the dump. I'd never done that in my life. And the first time I went out to the dump to take my trash, there's all these fires burning out of this dump. It's a horrible place. If I'd been a Christian back then, I could have made the connection. But in my mind, I distinctly remember, this is a horrible place. So Jesus uses that word Gehenna, the very valley where the dump from Jerusalem with fires that never were extinguished, pictured hell. And here in our passage, Peter borrows a word from Greek mythology. He borrows that word, and it's the word Tartarus. The Greeks said that Tartarus was a place lower than Hades. Hades was a low place, but Tartarus was even lower than that. It was, according to the Greeks, the lowest place for wicked, rebellious gods and people. Those who were sent there to receive the worst kind of punishment. Tartarus was the lowest place a being could go. There's no place lower than Tartarus. It's the hell of hells. That's what Peter uses. That's where God consigned these angels who sinned to Tartarus. And, of course, the Jews eventually came to use that very same term to describe that place where God consigned those angels. So Peter borrows this vivid word from Greek mythology from the language of his day because any of his readers now, be they Jewish or be they Greek, would understand exactly what he's describing. They understand the term. They know what Tartarus is all about. And these angels that sinned, it says in verse 4, these angels that sinned were consigned to Tartarus. They were tartarized to the deepest hell. And he further describes it in verse 4 as putting them into gloomy dungeons or pits of gloom. Tartarus is described that way. The word pit. Now in our NIV translation, it's gloomy dungeons. But literally the word is Pits of gloom. Oof. You would not want to be in a pit of gloom. It'd be the pits, wouldn't it? <laughs> that word pit comes from the Greek word seros, which very basically just means a storage place. Seros means a storage place, and we derive the same word, we derive the word silo from that word. We know what a silo is, a grain silo. It's a place of storage. It's where we store grain today. But in ancient times, these places were subterranean pits. And so all this imagery now is coming to play. So Peter says these angels who sinned, they were sent to the deepest, severest place of punishment. They were sent to subterranean pits of darkness and gloom. It's kind of reminiscent of Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 8 and in verse 12 when he says that hell is a place of darkness where there's weeping and grinding of teeth. Man, it's got to be pretty bad when you're weeping and grinding your teeth. You do not want to go to a place like that. So here are some angels. Angels who sinned. They were sent to the deepest hell in a 
subterranean pit of darkness to be kept there until the day of judgment. Well, there's more. Oh, yeah. He says they're held there. They're held there to be to for judgment. It's like they're a, they're a prisoner incarcerated awaiting their final sentencing. There's no bail. There's no way out. They're held there. Tartarus is a temporary place. I thought you said it's the lowest place. It's the lowest place. But it's a temporary place. Until that day of final judgment. And on that day, they go to another place. Do you know what place they go to? Revelation chapter 20, verse 10 tells us. It's the lake of what? Burning sulfur. Lake of fire. That is the ultimate hell. Created for the devil and his angels. And those who are also... With him, we'll go there. So the question again comes, who are these angels? Who are these angels that Peter's talking about? And what, what in the world did they do to deserve this? What did they do to deserve this? They must have done something really serious. Something really gross. Really bad. Because after all, there are a lot of other demons running around loose, right? These demons were all locked up. What did they do? Why did God choose to bind these demons for the duration of our time, man's time here on earth? Why did God choose to bind these demons until that final day of judgment at the great white throne to send them into the lake of fire? What did they do? What atrocity did they commit that forced God to imprison them? And by the way... Think about this with me. The rest of the loose demons who aren't in prison, who aren't locked up in those pits, the rest of the loose demons that are running around all over the place, they know about this group. And they know about this pit. And guess what? They don't want to go there. They don't want to go there. Listen to Matthew again. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. This gives us a little bit of insight. Speaking of Jesus, when he arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God, they shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Are you going to send us now to the pit where our fellow fallen angels are before we're supposed to go there? You say, do they know when they're supposed to go? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, they know. They know about the final lake of fire that follows the great white throne of judgment. And so they don't want to go there. And they say, you haven't come to send us before our time, have you? They know. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 8, Luke adds an interesting note. Same incident. Luke adds something. In verse 31, And these demons begged him repeatedly. They begged him repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. They knew about it. They didn't want to go. They knew what their fellow angels uh, locked up were experiencing. As vile, as wicked, as wretched, as despicable, as filthy as these fallen angels, as demons are, and they are despicable. They are somewhat restrained. They're somewhat restrained in their conduct because they are in constant fear that they might, if they overstep their limits... Be sent there. Be sent there. Into that pit of darkness. And they very simply don't want to go there. So they're restrained. They're restrained in their conduct. Those demons that are running around loose. And it's interesting, I think, to realize that when you read about the tribulation and you read in the book of Revelation, you realize that during the time of tribulation, some of that restraint is going to be released. I mean, literally, you see all hell breaking loose, don't you, in the book of Revelation? Yeah. 
the Bible says that there are some demons in that pit different from these who will be released. Some really bad demons are going to be released. And maybe the rest of those demons will get the idea that the chains of the prison have been broken loose. And that now the restraint on their conduct has been released. And that may be uh, one of the contributing factors to the horrors of the tribulation. Literally all hell breaks loose. So the fact that God sent this batch of fallen angels to the pit has acted as somewhat of a restraint on their conduct. But again, the question is, who are they? Who are they that are locked up? Turn to the book of Jude. Turn to the book of Jude. Verse 6 talks about the same thing. You'll see almost identical language used to describe some angels. The little book of Jude, verse 6. Jude says, And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their home, hmm, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. Now, do that, does that sound like the angels that he's bound up in, in Tartarus that Peter talks about? Sound like the same ones? does to me. Jude tells us that these angels didn't stay where they belonged. They moved outside of their, their boundaries. They moved outside of their habitation. Somehow, they moved out of their sphere of being and living. They moved beyond the demon sphere. I think that's what he's implying. And he says they are kept. These demons who moved outside of their sphere of, of, of living, these demons are kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. Well, what did they do? What exactly did they do? Look at verse 7. Verse 7, again, gives us another clue. Notice these words. In a similar way. In a similar way. Whatever they did was very much like what Sodom and Gomorrah did. What did Sodom and Gomorrah do? Well, let's read it. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to what? Sexual immorality, but not just sexual immorality, also to perversion. That's a really strong word, by the way, in the Greek. So whatever these angels did was very much like what Sodom and Gomorrah did. Had to do with sexuality, had to do with perverting sexuality. What did they do in Sodom and Gomorrah? What was their perversion? Does anybody know? What was the gross immorality of Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, all you have to do is go back to Genesis, uh, Genesis chapter 19 and read it. It was homosexuality. And by the way, we're going to discuss that in detail next time when we talk about God destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. Literally, in the Greek, it says this. Going after or going away, going away from their their habitation, going away from their habitation after different flesh. Ooh, that's descriptive, isn't it? So these demons, whatever they did, is they left their habitation and they went after different flesh. That's what Jude tells us. They went beyond their sphere of being. That's what happened in Sodom. That's exactly what happened in Sodom. Men went after men. And women went after women. Different flesh. Perversion. These demons, these fallen angels, did exactly the same thing. Like the men of Sodom who lusted after angels. And angels, by the way, when you see them in the, in the Bible, they always seem to be appearing in a male form. Do they not? Generally like men. Especially in Genesis chapter 19. And these filthy, vile Homosexuals of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, my wife asked me not to use those words because she doesn't want someone to shoot me. Even if you shoot me, I'm going to heaven. These filthy, vile homosexuals of Sodom and Gomorrah lusted after these angels. You read it? 
you read it in Genesis chapter 19. And God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah, doesn't he? Now listen, this is, listen so carefully here. As the men of Sodom lusted and went after angels, here's the comparison. As the men of Sodom lusted and went after angels, so the angels lusted and went after humans. These are the angels that are in this, that are imprisoned. That's the comparison. As the men wanted to leave their natural state and move beyond the unnatural lusting for men to go on to the bizarre lusting after angels, so these angels lusted after humans, more particularly women. You say, when did that happen? How do we know that? We'll go back to 1 Peter chapter 3. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 3. Verse 18. We add to our list of clues here. Verse 18 says, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Somebody say hallelujah. Now, He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. Put to death in the body, made alive by the Spirit. So His body was dead, right? Where was his spirit? His body was dead. His spirit was alive. Fair. Where was his spirit when his body was in the tomb? Look at verse 19. It tells us. Where, was, where does it say? He went somewhere. Where did he go? Prison. Ah, what prison? Ah. He went to prison and he preached. Who did he preach to? The spirits who were in prison. Now we have another clue. These spirits that he went to preach to, literally the word is caruso in the Greek. It means to proclaim a victory. He didn't just go to preach a sermon. He went to proclaim a victory. If you understand the, the root of that word. He went to proclaim his triumph over some spirits in prison. Now I think we're beginning to know who, the, who they are. They're the ones in Tartarus. They're the ones in Tartarus. They're the ones in those gloomy pits and dungeons. The ones who are there because they went after different flesh. Now, question. Why? Why did Jesus go there and proclaim his victory? This is very important. Why did he go there and proclaim his victory? Now, possibly because the demons believe that Jesus is dead, they're going to be free. They got the victory. They got the victory. Isn't it incredible you watch a football game or the World Series and you think one team has it in the bag and they're all celebrating. You can feel it in the air. Then the last second someone hits a home run or kicks a field goal and wins it and snatches victory from the jaws of defeat. And all the celebration... You just got to talk about it. <laughs> you got to celebrate it. Jesus goes to Tartarus. He goes to the pit, to the prison, to proclaim his victory over those spirits who believed they had defeated him and perverted his work. I love this. <laughs> I love this. They're all down there celebrating. You had to envision this. They're all down there. He's dead. He's dead. We got him. And then guess who shows up in the middle of, middle of the party to spoil it? <laughs> Jesus. Hallelujah. You say, why is that important? Why is that important? Look at verse 20. These spirits who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built... Who are these spirits? When did they do this? When did they do this? In the days of... When did they leave their proper abode? When did they go after different flesh? When were they consigned to hell, awaiting 
future judgment. When did they do this? It happened in the days of Noah. So go back, way back to Genesis chapter 6. Now we really have a clue. These spirits, by the way, that Peter mentions are angels. It's an important distinction. Peter calls people, people, or souls. The New Testament always uses the term spirits to refer to angels, unless there's a what's known as a qualifying genitive that makes it clear that it's humans, like the spirit of man. That's a qualifying genitive. So when you just have spirits, it always refers to angels. Their sin was in the time of Noah. Now let's go back again to the time of Noah, Genesis chapter 6. This is a very, very bad time. It's a very bad time. You think we have a bad time today. Noah's time was the worst. Remember, how many believers were alive on the entire earth in the time of Noah? Eight. That's it. Eight. The worst time in human history. Just before God drowned the whole world. I saw this thing. Let me give you a little side. I have some minutes here. A few, not many. <laughs> I saw this thing yesterday. I was watching, um, I think, the Discovery Channel. And uh, there were these professors talking about the, the flood and trying to find evidence of the flood. And they, uh, this guy sent a submarine down the bottom of the Black Sea. And then they had all this speculation and did you know that the flood happened because the, the ice cap, the ice flows melted? Yeah, that's what they said. And, and really, you know, they, the, the Gilgamesh epic and, and all of these stories that are handed down to us from antiquity, they're just myths. And the flood was just localized. I'm screaming at them! I thought, how apropos. Look at Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. When men began to increase in number on the earth, that means that they began to multiply, uh, rapidly multiply. And the daughters were born to them, the sons of God. Now, who are the sons of God? That's a reference to angels. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. And they married any of them they chose. So here you have angels, really demons, taking on male form, apparently, and cohabitating with women. You say, is such a thing possible? Apparently. They went after different flesh. They left their abode. They left their natural place where they should be. We have some indication here. You say, well, why did they do that? Why did they do that? Did they just do it because they just wanted to do it? Or was it some diabolical reason they did it? Let me suggest to you something. I believe, I believe they did this to breed an unredeemable race. This has a bearing on what we're talking about with respect to false teachers. I believe that those demons did that to, de to breed an unredeemable race so as to damn that race no matter what Christ did. It wouldn't make any difference what Christ did. It would be unredeemable. As long as men remain men, the God-man could redeem them. His sacrifice could be effective for them. But if they became a race of demon men, they would be unredeemable because demons know no redemption. So they produced a monstrous race that had to be drowned. In verse 3, in fact, God says, I'm not going to deal with them anymore. I've had it. No more. In verse 4, you have a reference to the Nephilim. Who were the Nephilim? Well, very possibly, they could, that could be a reference to these to these offspring, to these monsters, if you will, that were produced as a result of these demonic unions with the daughters of men. 
Those were the mighty men. Those were the renowned. They would be beyond humans. They would be some kind of superhuman creature, apparently. And God had to drown them along with the whole world. That's who those demons are that Peter's talking about. That God had to put them in those chains. That God had to put in those pits. Because of the unbelievable attempt. Mark this, please. Because of the unbelievable attempt to destroy the capability of Christ to redeem men. I believe that's why Jesus showed up in the pit. I believe that's why Jesus went and proclaimed his victory to those spirits in prison. He went to proclaim, I have accomplished my redemption. I have accomplished my redemption. The redemption you tried to corrupt. And he pronounced his victory over those angels in particular. They had gone farther than any other demons. They had gone farther than any other demons in their attempt to corrupt the redemptive plan of God. These are the demons who are in Tartarus. In the darkest, deepest, blackest pit of gloom, waiting until they are cast into the final hell, the lake of fire. Now here's Peter's point. Here's Peter's point. If God didn't spare the greater... If God didn't spare the greater, angelic beings who were his special creation, once gathered around his throne, more glorious, more powerful, more intelligent than mankind. If God didn't spare them when they perverted his truth, if God didn't spare them when they spread corruption, then will he not judge false teachers the lesser? If he spared not the greater, the angels, will he not then also judge and condemn and destroy the lesser? Teachers who lead people to believe lies about him and lies about his word. And thus they endeavor to destroy, same purpose, to destroy his redemptive purpose. False teachers, that's what they're about. That's why they're so despicable. And that's why God hates liars. And beloved, that is only example number one. That is only example number one of what God is going to do to those who by any means, be they angel or man, attempt to corrupt the redemptive truth and purpose of God. Next time, we're going to look at Sodom and Gomorrah. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for your word. Thank you for the warnings. Thank you, Lord, for your teaching us. Thank you for the clear examples that you give us, unmistakable. Lord, help us indeed to be people of truth. Help us to be people who who hunger and pursue the truth with all of our heart, who read your word, who love your word. Fill our minds and hearts with it, Lord. Help, Help us to be people who Teach not error, but teach the truth. Lead other people in the way of truth. So, Lord, we just thank you. Thank you this morning for your goodness and your mercy to us. Lord, that you are also a God of justice and holiness. Don't let us forget that. Keep your heads bowed for just a couple of minutes, if you would, please. I want to take just a moment or two to... Speak to some of you who may not be Christians. In fact, as we talked this morning about liars and God-hating liars, and that liars will not go unpunished, you may find yourself in that category. None of us wants to be identified as a liar. And all of us, to one degree or another, do tell lies. But those who persist in that are no different than false teachers. And we will be judged. So you may need to repent of that this morning. We 
I believe that God has brought you here because he wanted to hear some things, some very important things for your life. You may be young, maybe old. Matters not. Matters not if you're an angel or a human. The truth still holds. God judges those who are the liars. But the, God, the Bible also says that God wants to save you from that. He wants to deliver you from that. That he already punished his son in your place. Jesus died on that cross. Your death. Your sins. Your lies. Your perversions. He bore on that cross. Your punishment. That's what it means when it says that Jesus died once for all. Once for all time. Once for all men. And once for all sins. You say, well, what remains? It remains that you receive Christ. It remains that you commit your life to him. It remains that you believe that he died for you. And the logical conclusion of that is that you become his disciple. And in so doing, the Bible says you'll be born again. You'll be cleansed. You'll be given a new life. You'll be changed. And a whole new orientation for your life. And you go to heaven if you die. So I just want to offer to somebody an opportunity to pray, an opportunity to make a commitment, to say, Lord, I, I want to give my life to you. I, I want to surrender. I want to repent of my sins. I'm sorry for them. And I see where they lead. They lead to destruction, damnation. And I don't want to go there. Now, if that, if that reflects your, your, your attitude in your heart and mind this morning, then I, I want to pray with you. So I'm going to pray a prayer in just a moment, but I'm not going to pray it by myself. I, I want to know that there's... Some, somebody who wants to pray with me. And you can signal me, just as everybody else keeps their heads bowed and their eyes closed. You can lift your head. You can look up at me. And as our eyes connect, I'll ask you, i say, is that why you're looking up? And you'll say, yes, I want to pray that prayer, Pastor. Now, if that's you, just go ahead and look up at me now. Is there anybody at all that wants to pray? In the back, I can't see too well, so wave, wave your hand at me if you want to pray we're all we're all Christians here this morning huh did you want to pray is that what you're looking up at me want to give your life to Jesus today yes again okay that's all right if you're not sure if you're not sure it's no harm in, in making it sure, reaffirming your commitment this morning. Are you looking up at me there? Yes? Okay. Anybody else? We'll just take another, another few seconds here. Are you looking at me because you want to pray? No? You already know? Okay. All right, I'm going to ask the two of you to come right down here with me now, okay? Just come out of your chair, come right down now. If you came with somebody, bring your partner, bring your friend, bring your relative. Pauline, right? God bless you, okay. Yes, I know, Cynthia, come sit over here right here. What's your name? Jennifer. Jennifer, God bless you, Jennifer. What's your name? Anthony, are you a Christian yet? Yes. Yes, okay. Come on over here. All right. Come on over here. Okay, I'm going to pray a prayer. Just a prayer of commitment. You recite it after me, okay? God, forgive me of all my sins. God, forgive me of all my sins. I'm sorry for them. I'm sorry for them. And I'm willing to turn away from them. I'm willing to turn away from them. I commit my life to you. And I believe in Jesus. I believe that He died for me. I believe that He was buried, and that He rose from the dead after three days to bring new life. So God, I receive Your new life by faith. Wash me clean, cause me to be born again, and fill me with Your Holy Spirit. So I can serve you all the days of my life. Lord, I commit myself to you and to your will. And I thank you for saving me. 
And I thank you for saving me. And God, what a joy it is to call you my Father. And God, what a joy it is to call you my Father. And I pray in Jesus' name. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. All right. Hallelujah. I want you to turn over here. I want you to go with Pastor Vicki. She's going to talk to you for a couple minutes, okay? All right. Shall we sing his praises? Is God great? Yes. Yes, he is. sings my soul, my Savior, God to How great thou art. How great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior, God to How great thou I see the sun. 